morning, church, again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew or Matthew chapter 15. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Back more. Anybody else? Just raise your hand so you can follow along with us. Matthew chapter 15. Now, we're going to look from verse 29 all the way through chapter 16, verse 20. You go, no, no, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Are you crazy, Pastor Tom? Yes, I am, but you guys know that already. So, it all flows together. So, Matthew 15, verse 29. We're going to read... 15, chapter 15, verse 29 through verse 39, and then we'll pray, and then with the rest of the chapter, we'll get to it as we go through it. So, starting in verse 29, we read, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and he sent away the multitudes, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. The title of my message this morning is Clearing Up Misunderstandings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time today, Lord, this opportunity that you've given to us to open up your word and to know, Lord God, it's your desire to speak to our hearts. You have something to say to each one of us here this morning, Lord, and just as you have spoken to my heart concerning these verses, Lord, I'm convinced I know that you have something for all of us today. We pray, Lord, that we would have attentive ears to hear all that you have for us. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet, they're not saved yet, Lord, would you especially touch their heart that this morning they would see and they would come to know you as Lord and Savior. So bless our time together, we pray. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's a movie called The Groundhog Day, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, but Bill Murray plays a very self-centered selfish character where he's trapped repeating Groundhog Day over and over and over again. One person figured out how many days he lived that same day over and over again in order to accomplish all the things that he accomplished in, 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 in the movie like that, or what it shows. And it came to 12,395 days, or 33 years and 350 days. Now, by the time he made it to the last day of living each day over and over and over again, he was fluent in French. He, you know, was a concert pianist. He was an ice sculpturer. But more than that, on the last Groundhog Day, he was totally unselfish and caring and loving. 33 years and 350 days is all it took for him to change. Now, when we get to chapter 16, I'm sure the disciples may have felt the same as they've just spent three years 
out of the 33 years Jesus was on this earth, learning the same lessons over and over and over again. See, Jesus has been teaching them lessons on faith, lessons on trust. He continues to the end of chapter 15 and on into chapter 16, teaching them the same thing. But you see, the Lord knows, too, how many times we must go through certain trials to get us to trust Him, to completely have faith that He's going to work in our lives for good, no matter how bleak the situation may appear. Well, now we come to our text. We see that in verse 30 of chapter 15 that great multitudes came to Jesus. We don't have the exact number, but they were in the thousands. And they came looking to Jesus for physical healings. And it's interesting to me how people go to, to great pains, you know, just to, to, in order to be healed physically. They'll, they'll go to this or try this and go here and do that. But, but so few will come to be saved spiritually or to receive spiritual healing. Verse 30, we read that great multitudes of people came to Jesus And we read, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Every one of them were healed. Now this is really uh, because uh, this was the announcement of Jesus as the Messiah. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, tells us that Jesus would do these things when he came uh, into the world. Jesus, as the Messiah, healed them all. The blind could see, the lame could walk, the deaf could hear. He healed every one of them, and we see his power to heal. And then, now, next we see his compassion in verse 32. Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. So he wants to feed them, and so then Jesus turns to his disciples and they say, and they said, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Now, doesn't that have a familiar ring to it? Because we remember that Jesus had fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish back in chapter 14. It's like, is this Groundhog Day all over again? Did they really not remember this huge miracle? Perhaps they did. Perhaps they looked at Jesus with a smile and said, I wonder where we can get enough bread to feed all of these. They're like, are you going to do it again? That would be pretty cool. But uh, it's either that or they really did not get it. So the Lord says, let's go through this one more time. See, there are two separate accounts here. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 14 and the feeding of 4,000 here in chapter 15. And Jesus will make that clear in chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. But it's funny how you find people that will criticize the Bible and say, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible and it says there's 5,000 when he fed fed them and and, and we read over it's 4,000. So which is it? Well, it's both. (laughs) Two separate accounts. They're not contradictory. They're complementary. Again, the first time was five loaves Two fishes, second time seven loaves, and a few little fish. First time they collected 12 baskets of leftovers. The second time they collected seven baskets. Two separate accounts. So don't let anyone tell you, oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. There's two different, two different records. So Jesus made everyone sit down, and he said, how many loaves do you have? We have seven and a few fish. And Jesus gave, said, give them to me. He blessed them. He broke them. He gave them to the disciples. The disciples then passed them around to the people that come back and, until he fed all of them. In fact, the Greek word for being filled there is the word glutton. They were stuffed. And then they had seven baskets of full of bread left over. They had an abundance of over. I mean, it's just amazing God's compassion. Oh, I don't want to send them away. They need to eat before they go away. So not only the Lord has the power to heal the sick, but he has the power to feed the hungry. And so too, the Lord heals us spiritually. 
You know, we're, we're able to see spiritually and to walk in His ways. He cleanses us from our diseases spiritually. And He feeds us with the bread from heaven that satisfies our souls. Now, as we move to chapter 16, what we see is that there's a lot of misunderstanding going on that Jesus is going to clear up. Now, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at four of these misunderstandings this morning. We're going to see, number one, that people misunderstand the times. Number two, people misunderstand true and false doctrine. Number three, people misunderstand who Jesus is. And number four, people misunderstand the church. Thus, the title of my study, Clearing Up Misunderstandings. I'm reminded of a story about a little girl that crawled up in the lap of her grandpa and cuddled close. And then she looked at grandpa's face with those big blue eyes of hers and said, Grandpa, can you please make us sound like a frog? And grandpa thought for a moment, then smiled and said, Ribbit, ribbit. Yelling as loud as she could, uh, suddenly the little girl leaped from his lap and ran into the kitchen, yelling as loud as she could, Mommy, Mommy, we're going to Disney World, we're going to Disney World, Mommy, we're going to Disney World. Well, the young mom hushed her child and said, Honey, why do you think we're going to Disney World? The little girl, gleaming with joy, blurted out, You told Dad that we can go to Disney World when Grandpa croaks. I like that one. <laughs> that was a good one. Misunderstandings. Misunderstandings. We all have them. Our first point, people misunderstand the times. They, they misunderstand the times and, and the days in which we live. Look at verses 1 through 4 now of chapter 16. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. I love that. He says what he has to say. He says, all right, I'm out, I'm out of here. See, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they were two sects of, of Judaism that existed at that, that time. The Pharisees, you might say, they were the, the legalists, okay? They came into existence between the Old and the New Testaments. They were separatists, religiously speaking. They were giving themselves over to formalism, legalism. They were very strict and adhered to these, these laws and tenets of the laws, even the oral and the traditions. They had the long robes on. They had their prayer boxes that they would read. And, and we have seen that they've been very legalistic. Now, the opposite side was the case for the Sadducees. The Sadducees were also said to the Jews that they were liberal in their doctrines and in their beliefs. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in angels or in spirits. So, so they would deny what the Pharisees held, so they would be called the liberals today or the intellectuals of the day who rationalize. You might call them the, the rationalists. And they would rationalize doctrines in Scripture. Now, did the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I mean, they rarely agreed on anything. I mean, they're always at each other's you know, throats. But now they're coming to Jesus. And even though they're opposed to one another, they found a mutual uh, cause in their hatred for Jesus Christ. I mean, this is like the liberals and the conservatives getting together. Rush Limbaugh and Nancy Pelosi, you know, are joining forces. Meat eaters and, and, and vegans got together. PC users and Mac users get together. Or outlaw bikers and ballerinas get together. Or Hannity and Hillary get together. I mean, I can go on and on and on. You get the point. 
It's interesting that the non-believers who do not agree with each other will agree upon at least one thing. They both hate Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church. So these Pharisees and these Sadducees, they link up together and they come to Jesus and they say, we would like to have a sign from heaven. <laughs> really? <laughs> now we just read in chapter 15 that Jesus healed the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others. He just fed 4,000 people plus women and children from just seven loaves of bread and a couple of small fish. What more do you want? They say, oh, can we, can we see a sign? I mean, where have you been? But you see, they really didn't want a sign like that. They were trying to trip trap Jesus up because the word for sign there in verse 1 means a miraculous sign in the heavens. In other words, make some stars fall out of the sky or make the sun not to shine to prove to us that you really are uh, the Messiah. But Jesus goes right to their hearts. You hypocrites in verse 3. He saw these guys as they truly were. He called them that back in chapter 15 as well. He doesn't hold back. You guys are a bunch of phonies, hypocrites. See, if they had been studying the Word of God like they claimed to be students of, of the Word, then they should have, as they should have been, they would have known that this was the exact time and the place what was going on for the Messiah to appear. The, the sign that the fulfilled prophecy alone should have been evidence enough for them that Jesus is the Messiah. So then Jesus gives them an example of how inconsistent they were. He says, when you wake up in the morning and you see the sky is red, you say it's going to be a stormy day. In the evening when the sky is red, you say it's going to be a beautiful day the next day. You can discern the skies and, and then the times of the weather, but you're absolutely ignorant about the fact that I am the Messiah here in the time in which you're living. You fail to recognize the day that was prophesied of the Messiah has now come. In fact, listen to Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6. I quoted it already. It says this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall birth forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. This is a, a prophetic picture of what Jesus would do when he came to this earth. And they were, he was doing that. We just read that. Now Jesus uses this illustration of the weather. And I think when it comes to Missouri weather, I think I, I probably can do better than the, than the weatherman you see on TV. I mean, I can tell you if it's going to rain or not. All you have to do is call me up and say, Tom, did you wash your car today? And I'll say, yep, it's going to rain. It doesn't take a genius for us to figure out what the weather's going to be for the day. In fact, we have the little apps on our phone now, and they got the little pictures, and it'll show the lightning coming down, or it shows the rain, or the sunshine, or a little bit of clouds, or, you know, in the winter it shows the snow on there. And, or you can just walk outside and go, man, it's a beautiful day today. No rain. Jesus says, you can do the same thing, but, but you really are just totally unaware of the times, signs of the times. I think for us, we can see the signs of the times today all over, that the, the reminder to us that Jesus is coming back very soon. I mean, these signs are screaming at us from the front pages of our newspapers. We see it on the pages of the internet and the television and, and, and in the news, events are happening around the world. Signs that are showing us over and over again that we're living in the last days, that Jesus is coming again, and we have to pay attention to those signs and realize, I mean, do you realize that we are living in the last days? And one of the, the clearest signs that show to us that we're living in the last days is the rebirth of the nation of Israel back in 1948. This is absolutely amazing. Never before in the history of mankind has a nation been born out of the past. For almost 2,000 years, you had a nation without a homeland, a people without a homeland, dispersed around the world, hated, despised, and persecuted, and yet out of the past, a nation is born, the nation of Israel, just as God said would happen. 
You know, there's no longer the Moabites, no longer the Ammonites or Edomites or termites. There's still termites. Some of these other Canaanite tribes that lived in the land during Israel's time. But Israel is the only nation that's been reborn out of the past. And I believe that Israel is God's time clock. God is working out his purposes and plans through Israel for a second coming of Jesus Christ. But there's other signs that are out there. The signs is pointing to a one world government. We have the world wide web. We have uh, terms that we speak of globally. And this is the global network. This is the global rights and so forth. Because we're, we're thinking in terms of a one world situation where, which is the Bible says is going to exist at the time of Jesus' return. And then there is a spiritual deception to name another that the, the one world religion that will exist at the time that Jesus returns. And we see the signs pointing towards that. I think I shared this a few weeks back in February. The Pope and the Grand Imam of, of Al-Hazar signed an historic declaration of eternity calling for peace between nations, religions, and races. According to a British news source, the signing of this covenant was done in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faiths. In other words, there was a, a concerted effort to make sure that all of the religions of the world were represented at this gathering. They basically said, we all serve the same God, and it's a will of God that there's all these hundreds of different religions out there, and, and, and they're all acceptable in His sight. And that's a sign of the times. Then on top of that, we have the apostasy that's in the church today. I mean, if you study, even now today, the mainline denominations in the United States, you'll discover that very few of them anymore hold to orthodox beliefs they deny the inspiration and infallibility of the scriptures. It's inerrancy. Denying the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Denying his dual nature of being man and God at the same time. They deny his substitutionary death upon the cross. His bodily resurrection from the grave. His second coming. These are all doctrines that are being denied in so-called Christian churches today. And deception of false doctrine is running rampant today in the world and in the church. Then I think of We'll get to it, Matthew chapter 24. Jesus talks about earthquakes intensifying, famine, pestilence, wars, rumors of wars. All these things are the beginning of sorrows, Jesus says. So I do believe that we are living in crucial times and that we need to be tuned in the, into the times in which we live. Paul said this in Romans 13, 11, and do this knowing the time that now is high time to wake out of sleep for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I mean, if we believe the weatherman's report that it's going to be a nice day, how much more should we believe Jesus' words when he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. Revelation twenty-two twelve. We're told in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. One more point I want to make before we get to the second point. Look at verse 4. I don't want to miss this. Jesus said, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Not only did Jesus validate the story of Jonah here, which is a well of a miracle. I mean, he, you know, people say, Oh, how could, how could you know, a well actually swallow a man? Jesus said it happened. You take Jesus' word on it. But he also used it to illustrate his death and resurrection. Jesus said, You want a sign? I'm the sign. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to uh, rise again on the third day. That's my sign. I'm going to die for the sins of this world. That's what he's saying. So number one, people misunderstood the times. Number two, 
People misunderstood true and false doctrine. Look at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 16. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, beware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? I think we're coming to find out in our studies that this is one of Jesus' favorite sayings, uh, callings of his disciples. Oh, you of little faith. It's like that's what he liked to call them. Hey, come over here, you little faith. You know, again, about you little faith. <laughs> Actually, he used that phrase more than any other, other phrase. Why do you reason among yourself, you of little faith? I wonder if the disciples said, I wish you'd stop calling us that. <laughs> but it was true. Here are these guys, his disciples, they get into the boat and Jesus says, I want to warn you against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they go, oh, he's bummed out because we forgot to bring the bread. Oh, Peter, it was your job. Where's the bread? I can picture Jesus going, oh, no, 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 no. Okay, no, you guys, you're slow. We're not talking about literal bread here. And a lot of people make the same mistake where they interpret the figurative speech of Scripture of Jesus literally. We need to be exact on how we interpret and handle Scripture. Sometimes they'll take a, a literal statement and they'll interpret it figuratively. And sometimes they'll take a figurative statement and they'll interpret it literally. I think of John chapter 3. Jesus says, you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, well, how does a man enter in his mother's womb the second time? Jesus was speaking spiritually. Nicodemus was trying to figure it out literally. So we need to be careful. When Jesus says leaven, he isn't talking about actual yeast or a piece of fermented dough that they would use like yeast to make bread rise. Jesus is talking about sin. The Bible over and over and over again makes reference to the leaven as being a picture, a type of sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little sin affects your whole life. So Jesus says, how can you guys think that I'm talking about actual bread? He says in verse 9, do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? <laughs> Obviously, they didn't remember. I mean, this is where we get into trouble. We don't understand. We don't remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or the seven loaves of the 4,000. Remember, Jesus says, how many baskets you took up? I mean, if, if I wanted bread, I could have bread right here, he's saying. Now, that does verify uh, that there are two cases of multiplying the bread and the fish. But what had happened? The disciples had forgotten. They've forgotten. You know, they say that the memory is the second thing to lose as you get older. What's the first thing? I don't know. I forgot. But Actually, I heard about two guys that were hanging out in the kitchen. Uh, one guy said to his buddy, Man, I went to the best steak restaurant last night. It was the juiciest steak I've ever had. It was fantastic. His buddy said, what, What's the name of the place? He says, uh, I don't remember. Wait, wait, wait. What's that thing? It's, it's like red and it grows out of the ground and has little thorns coming out of it. His friend said, Rose. Right. Rose. What was the name of that restaurant we went to last night? <laughs> now you can laugh at that. It could have been a courtesy laugh. But, <laughs> but have you ever forgotten God's goodness to you? Do you forget God's goodness to you? Have you had to relearn something over again? Of course you have. We all have. 
That's why Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 12 to 13, Therefore I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. I find that I need to learn. I need to learn it again, relearn it, and learn it a few more times. Why? Because sometimes I do forget. Now maybe there was a financial crisis when you were younger. You didn't know when the, where the money was going to come in. You, you had to pay rent or house or car payment, put food on the table. But you trusted in the Lord, and the Lord came through for you. Then you worked hard. You got yourself a good job, a regular paycheck. Everything's going along for like 20 years, and a stable income, a growing income. Then one day, the company's got to downsize or let people go, and now you're back to square one, and all of a sudden, it's, it's freak-out time. Wait, didn't God provide for you before? Yeah, but I was much younger and it was less money. Oh, okay, so, so it, it, it's more money. It's harder for God to give more money. It's too hard for God. Is anything too hard for, for God in the Bible? Ask. The answer is no. But you have to relearn that lesson over again. I need to trust in the Lord again. Or maybe another situation. Maybe you were very ill and, and, and you knew a doctor couldn't resolve it for you, but you asked for your Christian friends to pray for you and, and, and the Lord touched you and healed you. And you said, oh, isn't God great? God healed me. Fast forward three years, now you're sick again. Maybe it's a little more serious and maybe it's less serious. I don't know. But all of a sudden you go into panic mode. Oh, I don't know. I'm sick. Wait, God did it before. Won't God do it again? God will be faithful to you. But sometimes we need to relearn the lessons over and over again. It's back to Groundhog Day over and over again. So Jesus says in verse 11, How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Oh, now we get it. You're talking about doctrine, not bread. We need to look out for, for bad doctrine. And Jesus says, now you got it. Yes, now you're getting it. Now, if you look at the doctrine Jesus was warning his disciples about, uh, remember the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees was legalism. The, the, the sin of the Sadducees was liberalism. Watch out, you know, for, for, the, for the Pharisees. They think that God will accept them because, you know, they, they, they hold to certain things. They're baptized because they do or, or don't do certain things. I shared before, I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't hang around girls that do. And, and you think by your, your legalism, you're going to find favor with God. Watch out for that. Beware of that. Be careful that what you believe is really taught in Scripture. It's just not added to Scripture by men. Be careful that you're not just worshiping God with your lips if your heart is far from Him. You have the outward veneer, but you don't have the inward reality. Then you have the sin of the, the Sadducees, which was liberalism. Watch out for those who seek to rationalize and explain away the true faith and orthodox belief in God's Word and Scripture. Well, we don't really believe that the Bible was accurate in the account of creation. Yeah, we're Christians, but we believe in evolution because the scriptures, they're not really clear. You know where it said that God created heaven and earth? Maybe he really didn't do it like that. Maybe he just created matter. Then the, the matter evolved. That's called theistic evolution. And that's a lie. You know, it's sad that these guys, they're so quick to believe science, which is, is, has to be revised every year, but they're so slow to believe the clear teaching of scripture. I believe that God... God's Word teaches that God created the heavens and earth and the universe and man and the animals and the plants in six days. And by days, I mean 24-hour days, not six billion years, not 6,000 years, but six days. 
Why? Because God is infinite in His power and God can do anything. So we need to be aware of the false doctrines, the false teachings that are out there. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So as we see the last days approaching, some are going to leave their faith and they're going to believe the lies that are out there. God help us as Christians to not only be discerning, not only of the times and the seasons in which we're living in, but also be discerning of the true and false teachings that are out there. And then this brings us to our third point. People misunderstood who Jesus is. Look now at verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Good question. Very good question. In fact, this is the most important question ever asked any man. The door to eternity swings on it. Who do you say Jesus Christ is personally? Well, look at the answers. Look now at verse 14 to 20. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Verse 13, very important Pastor, Jesus asked, what's the popular opinion about me? What's being said about me? And they were quick to answer. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Now, John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was similar to Elijah in his looks and his methods. But Jesus wasn't at all like John or like Elijah. They said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Now, you're getting a little closer because Jeremiah was known as a weeping prophet and Jesus was known as a man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. Yet Jesus was not Jeremiah. This was, just, this was just a popular opinion that they were saying at the time. Others say, well, you're, you're one of the prophets. I mean, I think we could go downtown on any given night, go down on First Friday, you know, Greg can attest to this, you know, go downtown and, and you ask people, who do you think Jesus is? And they'll say all sorts of things, you know, oh, I don't think he ever existed. Some say, well, he was a good man or... You know, but the disciples made him into something he really wasn't. Or people say he's one of the prophets. He's like Buddha and Muhammad and all these other prophets. He's just one of them. Many, many different views. You'll hear it often. Well, he was a good teacher, a moralist. He gave us a good moral to, to live a standard to live by. But he was no more divine than any other human being that ever lived. You know, we hear this usually around Easter. I mean, as we get closer to Easter. We get the, we, we, you know, the, the magazines start running the stories. I found this one. This is from a, a while back. Who Jesus is. And they seek to, to explain who Jesus really is. And they never really do a, an adequate job of it. They're, they're, some of them are really pretty whacked. And that's because people are confused over who Jesus is and who he was. It's interesting that as you look over, over the pages of history to hear the statements that people made about Christ. So, so who do you think Jesus is? Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Napoleon said, I know men and Jesus was no mere man. Strauss, the German rationalist, said Jesus was the highest model of religion. John Stuart Mill's British philosopher of the 1800s said Jesus was guide of humanity. 
The French atheist Renan said he was the greatest among the sons of men. Theodore Parker, a transcendentalist and minister of the Unitarian Church, again from the early 1800s, said Jesus Christ was a youth, was a youth with God in his heart. Some today call him superstar or the greatest superhero, yet all of these titles and descriptions fall short of identifying Jesus who he really was. The Son of God in human form. The Messiah. I love C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, because he responds to the statement of, of someone saying that Jesus was a good moral teacher. And you hear a lot about this these days. Oh yeah, Jesus was wonderful. He was a, a great religious leader. Or some of the other quotes that I've, I've cited. But in his book, Mere Christianity, I love how he responds to that. Listen to this. He, say, he writes this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying and unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. So, when asked directly in verse 15, but who do you, do you say that I am? He turns to Peter. Who do you say that I am? Peter says this in verse 16. Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I love that. This flash of inspiration came into the mind and the heart of this great fisherman as he gained insight that was missed by the others, even the always perceptive John. It was Peter that got it. Peter recognized it. It was Peter that, that had the guts to, and the courage to publicly say in front of the others, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, it seems like in every person's life, there's a time when, when suddenly the lights go on and they get it. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You can talk to someone about Jesus day in and day out. Maybe you work with them and you're sharing with them and you, and you, you, you pray for them and you, and you say, well, just come to this meeting, come to this church service, come to this special teacher that's going to come. You've got to hear this. And, and you share with them and, and they come and they just kind of sit there. Yeah, that's all right, you know. They don't have the, the facilities to, to grasp what you're saying. And, and then one day out of the clear blue sky, they, they get it, they believe. And you go, how did that happen? It's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery how God brings them into the kingdom. You'll try and you'll try. You'll bring in a guest evangelist, you know, listen to this podcast and they won't. And then suddenly you see him the next day and you go, it was really weird. I was talking to my neighbor and, and he told me about Jesus and how he died for my sins. How can I be born again? And I accepted him right there. He goes, I've been telling you this for six months, a year. I mean, come on. But see, it's the Spirit of God working at that time where He opens the eyes of that person to see the truth of the Gospel. Peter was getting it. His eyes had been opened. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this brings us to our, our final point, number four. People misunderstand the church. Now in verse 18, Jesus makes a statement. 
one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted statements that Jesus ever made. So we're going to read it carefully. After Peter made his statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then in verse 18 we read, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That verse alone divides Protestants and Roman Catholics right there and then. The Roman Catholic view is that Peter is the first pope. And they say that Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, I'm going to build my church upon you, Peter. You, Peter, you're the rock. I will build my church upon, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail. And from Peter down on to the present pope, they've all been handed down the succession of authority of the church, and that Peter was the foundation. Let me say unequivocally that this is not what is being taught here or what Jesus was saying here at all. No way, Jose. That's a huge misunderstanding of Scripture. It's not supported biblically. First of all, Jesus uses two words in the original language to describe the situation. First, he says, Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, the word Peter does mean rock, but it means a little rock. So, not Arkansas, just a little rock. It comes from the Greek word Petros, which means little rock. So, Jesus said, you are Petros, you are a little rock. And then he said, upon this rock I will build my church. He used a different Greek word, Petro, which means a massive rock. Sort of like the rock of Gibraltar. Gibraltar. So Jesus says, you are a rock, Peter, little rock, but upon this Petra, this massive rock, I will build my church. So you might say Peter was a chip off of the old rock, I guess. But he's using two different Greek words. Now, what is the Petra that Jesus builds his church on? Well, it's certainly not Peter. But in the context of Peter's statement in verse 16, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock on which the church is built, Jesus Christ. It's Peter's statement of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God, and the church is built upon Jesus Christ. That doesn't take much of figuring out because we have other scriptures to prove it. Ephesians, or, or uh, 1 Corinthians rather, chapter 3, verse 11. It says, for no other foundation can anyone lay that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Can't get any clearer than that. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the foundation of the church. Nor No mortal man can fill that position. I'm so glad that the church was not built upon Peter. Praise God for that. I'm glad it's not built upon any human being. As the old hymn declares, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holding thee on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Then Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's a principle in Bible interpretation called the law of first mention. And here in verse 18, it's the first reference in the scriptures of the word the church. So the law, the principle states that where a subject is mentioned the first time, you'll find crucial, uh, crucial understandings, uh, later on applications for. And, and here we learn three truths about the church here. Number one, Jesus bought the church. Number two, Jesus builds the church. And number three, Jesus does battle through the church. Jesus bought the church. Not the pastor's church or the people's church. It's Jesus' church. He purchased it with his own blood, you and I. So Jesus bought the church. Jesus builds a church. You can go to all sorts of, of church growth seminars and, you know, and, 
and find all sorts of ideas of how you can attract crowds and get them to come into the church. But only Jesus can build a church with maturity and, and, and a strong church. I think of when God told another would-be temple builder named Zerubbabel, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. If we will just be the church, do what God has called us to be, sharing in communion as we will do this morning, praising God, praying for one another, studying God's word, sharing our faith. The Bible says the Lord will add to the church daily those who are being saved, Acts 2.47. That was the strategy in the book of Acts and it still worked and works to this day. And finally, Jesus does battle through the church. Notice he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A gate is a defensive fortification. This is not hell attacking the church. It's not the demons picking up a gate and hitting people with gates. You know, that's not what it's saying here. What this is saying is, is, uh, is a church making a difference for the kingdom of God. Sharing the gospel, seeing people set free from the bondage of sin and death. Taking the fight to Him. The church has taken the the, the battle to the forces of evil. Making a difference. Finally, what about verse 19? Where Jesus says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, I believe what what the Lord is saying to Peter is that you're going to be the first one to open up the doors to the kingdom. Open up, uh, I'm going to use you to let people see that they can come and be saved. And what happened on the day of Pentecost? Who stood up and preached? Peter did. And 3,000 came to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter took the key and he opened it up and 3,000 souls were saved. Then Peter was sent to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and he took the key and he opened the door and he shared the gospel. Uh, He went into Cornelius' house and he said, Hey, God, show me that you guys can get saved. Praise God for that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. And as Peter's talking and explaining who Jesus was, the Spirit of God was falling on these Gentiles, these non-Jews, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues, and, and they were saved, and they were baptized in water. And he took the key, and he opened the door for the Gentiles to be saved. Now, those doors were opened initially by Peter. Soon, all the apostles went out and began to preach the gospel as well. And more came into the kingdom of God. And I believe we as believers have the same keys today for doors of opportunity. Doors to open up to proclaim the gospel. We can go and open up the kingdom of God to people who've never heard it before. We can preach the gospel to them. And then he goes on with one more thing. He says in verse 19, And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this also can be a, a verse taken out of context, misunderstood. Well, I'm going to bind this in Jesus' name and I'm going to lose this in Jesus' name. That's not what this is saying. All that Jesus is saying here is that you, that you confirm what I've already done in heaven. What heaven has already done, you can do. Here, the Greek here means what is already bound in heaven, you can bind on earth. What is already loose in heaven, you can loose on earth. But if it's not already bound or loose in heaven, then, then you can't loosen or bind it here on earth. See, don't get the idea that Peter, even us today, have the power to loose things or bind things in the spiritual realm unless God has already done it. What Jesus is talking about here is as you open the keys of the kingdom, when you open the keys of the kingdom by preaching the gospel and people come to the kingdom, you can tell them with 100% assurance your sins have been forgiven, they've been loosed, you're going to heaven, you're born again. Your sins have been put as far as the east is from the west. When Jesus said, whoever sins you will remit, they will remit it in the same, it's the same concept. If you say you believe in Jesus and someone gets saved, then you can say, I, I have the authority of God's word that your sins are forgiven. 
Now, I haven't forgiven them, nor do I have the power to forgive sins, nor does any man have the power to forgive sins. God does. It's, it's already, now God did it. It's already done in heaven. I'm just declaring what God has already done. God has loosed you from your sins, and we proclaim what God has done. What a marvelous thing that is. If someone repents, gives their life to the Lord, then they're loosed from their sins, and, and we can declare that, man, the guilt is gone. You're, you're free from the bondage of sin. Praise the Lord. If someone will not repent, refuse to come to Christ, then they're still bound by their sin. They're not loosed. And, and that they'll perish. They'll go to hell for all eternity. And by the authority of Scripture, we can declare that as well. We can affirm that based on the authority of Scripture. If you do not confess Jesus as Lord, turn from your sin, repent, you will die in your sins, and judgment awaits you. But I do not have the authority to lose or bind anybody's sins, neither does any priest or any person. So number one, people misunderstood the times. Number two, people misunderstand true and false doctrine. Number three, they misunderstand who Jesus is, and they misunderstand, number four, the church. God help us to to be aware of the times and the days in which we're living in. God, help us to, to understand what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And God, help us to have a right understanding of who Jesus is and why He came and why He suffered and why He died. And fourthly, God, help us to have a right understanding of the church. It's God's church. It was born in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and now everyone who believes in Jesus Christ becomes a part of the body of Christ. Our identification with Christ in the body that is salvation, which, we, which He is the head. Well, as we close and enter in a time of communion, it's a time of really remembering just how we've come a part of the body of Christ, His church. It's, it's through Jesus' death and ultimate sacrifice upon the cross. Though He never sinned, He took upon Himself every sin we have committed and will commit and paid the penalty for it. As has been said, He paid a debt He didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Communion is a time for believers to remember what Jesus did and rejoice as we wait for the Lord's return. The question this morning is, are you a part of the body of Christ? Have you been born again? Do you belong to Him? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? You see, before we enter communion, you need to make sure you have the right answer to that question. Again, communion is for those that are born again, those who are believers. The Bible says, if you partake of communion and you're not a born again believer, you've got to heap judgment upon yourself. And so if you're here this morning and, and you've not committed your life to Jesus Christ and you don't want to, I don't know why you wouldn't, but, but you don't want to, then when we pass out the elements, you know, we hold on to them and we partake them together. But when we pass them out, if, if you're not a believer, just let the, the trays pass by you. Give them to the next person there. But here's a better decision for you. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Confess your sin. Tell Him you want to be born again. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. God's given me the key to, to declare that. Okay, But Jesus is at the door. He's the one knocking. You've got to open that door and say, Jesus, I want you to come into my life. I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again. If that's your desire, I want to give you that opportunity and then we're going to enter into a time of communion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that knowing you is more than just a religion, a set of rules and regulations. It's a relationship, a living relationship in which, God, you speak to our hearts. You enlighten us through your word. And, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to be born again, they're yet to have their sin forgiven, they're not truly a Christian, 
Lord, would you especially touch their heart today? Maybe this would be the day that they say, I get it, I understand. I want to give my life to you, Jesus. While our eyes are closed and our heads are still bowed, is there anyone here this morning, you want to, you want to be born again today? You want your sin forgiven? You want to come to Christ today? He's knocking at the door of your heart. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Anybody at all? It's just between you and the Lord. Father, thank you that you opened our eyes to see our need for you. And thank you for this time of communion. We can go back to that night of which you were betrayed, Lord, and you took the bread and you took the cup. And you told your disciples what you were about to do. Lord, we go right back to that same night and we look back and we see what you've already done. How you took the sacrifice upon the cross for yourself, for our sin. We so rightly deserve to to go to the cross. We rightly deserve to die for our sins, to, to pay the penalty for our sin. But Jesus, you took it all. And then you said, it is finished, complete. Lord, thank you. Bless this time as we... Uh, Prepare our hearts for communion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.